does addiction have to do with terrorism? Well, the answer is a lot. And today you're about to hear why. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Well, did you hear about the new Surgeon General's report that just came out? Uh, it's called Facing Addiction in America. And it is essentially a compilation of a ton of statistics that are pretty frightening when you when you look at them all together. Um, and because our country is is drinking and drugging to uh, more extremes than you probably realize, certainly than my, I probably realized, and I deal with this all the time. Um, what does this have to do with terrorism, though? Well. First of all, one of the reasons why we're drinking and drugging more is because of the stress of terrorism. Despite so many people pretending to themselves that we're not really under more threat, there's not going to be another terrorist attack, it's not going to happen here again, um, you know, other than maybe lone wolves and they're not going to happen in my neighborhood, <laughs> not in my backyard. Um, there's a lot of that going on. And of course, when you're drinking and drugging, it's a lot easier to be in denial about terrorism. It's an escape. And at the same time, it's a vicious cycle because um, when people are turning to drugs and alcohol and becoming addicts, uh, our country is more vulnerable to terrorism. I mean, needless to say, when you're high, you're not in a great position to either do your job uh, well, to take care of your family, well, to be a support for your friends, um, to protect yourself in a terrorist attack, to help others. Certainly, uh, drinking and drugging cuts down on your ability to be resilient. And um, all in all, it makes America more vulnerable to terrorists. Um, and this is particularly uh, important right now because of all the states in the recent election which have been voting to uh, increase the, uh, uh, the access to marijuana. I mean, we don't think about, um, you know, drinking and drugs. We don't think about marijuana so much as a drug, but it is. And I'll be telling you about that. Um, it's not an opiate, um, but it is addicting. And um, it's something that it's a gateway drug is, is really the main point. And it also has effects of its own. But I'll get to that um, in a little bit. I want to um, uh, talk about some of these statistics, these alarming statistics. First of all, 78 people die each day from an opioid overdose. Now, opioids, you know, that's the new, I mean, aside from the increasing access to marijuana, opioids um, are, have been the drug, the opioids and heroin actually, have been the drugs that have been uh, increasing most quickly in recent times. And opioids, um, of course, have been a problem because of so many people who are in physical pain and who get prescribed opioids. And then this leads them down um, the rocky road 
to to either trying to get more prescription opioids or trying to um, or, or just going getting into an opiate addiction um, you know going getting street drugs to fulfill their cravings so that that is a, a problem and and the, and you know opioids are, are pain medications and yes, there are a lot of people with physical pain, which ironically comes in a large part, aside from you know accidents and broken bones and all kinds of physical reasons for pain. It's also stress that causes people to feel pain more. So, for example, I mean, it could be you know family stress or uh, terrorist stress. And so, for example, if you have arthritis. Um, which, you know, chronic arthritis and which causes chronic pain, it is um, increased in times when you're feeling more stress. So not only, though, are we having uh, more physical pain, but we're having more psychological pain, again, because of all the stresses in the world, the primary one being terrorism. Of course, there are also stresses from the economy, which has not yet recovered, despite the numbers that you might hear in reports, um, and certainly family dysfunction, and lots of there are lots of stress ores attacking all of us, job problems, joblessness, and so on. Um, but also terrorism is a key stress, despite the fact that we are trying to pretend that, as I was saying, it's not going to happen here again. Um, 20 million, over 20 million people have a substance use disorder. Now, this, uh, the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, is hoping that his uh, Surgeon General report, which he... Um, in which he's trying to get across the, um, the notion that addiction is not a character flaw, it's a brain disease. He's trying to get us to realize that there's no uh, shame and there shouldn't be a stigma about addiction because that is getting in the way of people getting help. So he's hoping that just like the 1964 Surgeon General's report on smoking, it's going to wake us up and make us realize that this is a more serious problem than, than we had realized, and we need to do something about it, both in terms of cutting down the stigma and in terms of getting help for ourselves or our loved ones if we are suffering from or going down that road towards addiction. So here are some more uh, statistics. Um, as I was saying, over 20 million Americans were directly affected by drug or alcohol addiction last year, which is roughly the same amount of Americans who have diabetes. And, uh, you know, when you think about that, um, that's, I mean, diabetes is a very common, we think of that as a very common uh, disorder. And we don't, and, and, and people get treatment for it. Yet one in every 10 of the people who were suffering from drug or alcohol addiction got treatment. So um, he's, he, the Surgeon General is saying, we would never tolerate a situation where only one in 10 people with cancer or diabetes gets treatment. And yet we do that with substance abuse disorders. And then also there's more, there are more than 27 million people who reported misusing 
not necessarily an addiction, but misusing legal prescription drugs or using illegal ones. And more than 66 million people said they had engaged in binge drinking sometime in the previous month. Now that's a kind of staggering number. More than 66 million people engaged in binge drinking sometime during the previous month. I mean, that's, um, that is a large portion of our country. Um, part of this, you know, part of the, the um, problem for this, besides the stigma, is uh, doctors who are not being as careful as they should. This is one of my pet peeves. Um, doctors who give patients uh, prescriptions for addictive drugs, whether it's pain pills or um, Xanax, anti-anxiety anti medications, um, medications like Xanax, are being abused terribly. Uh, I have had to, when patients come to me and they're on Xanax and they want more, um, I, I get them to uh, gradually detox from them, gradually wean themselves off. Um, and I wind up calling up their doctor. You know, they're usually doctor shopping. They, they often get it from their primary care doctor. And um, it is a terrible, terrible addiction. You know, doctors give it out like candy. And I have to admit that one of the reasons why doctors are doing this um, is because of the problems in medicine these days where doctors aren't getting paid enough and um, their ethics tend to look the other way when... Um, when patients, you know, it is an anti-anxiety drug and, and most patients have anxiety, so they kind of use that as an excuse. But there are, the, the treatment for anxiety is psychotherapy, where you talk about what's making you anxious. Uh, you don't make the problem worse by taking anti-anxiety drugs that um, will give you an addiction in addition to your anxiety because you need to keep taking more with any kind of addicting drug. You build up a tolerance to it, whether it's a pain pill or an anti-anxiety pill, you build up a tolerance. So what once cured your pain, you know, made your pain go away, or what once made your anxiety go away, doesn't do it uh, continuously. You need, you need to keep increasing the dose to get the same result, and that's how people get more and more addicted. Um... So there, so doctors have to be more, have to screen patients better, and have to not contribute to this problem. Um, the yeah, some other you know surprising statistics are that more people use prescription opioids than use tobacco. So we thought smoking was a huge problem, and that has been getting better. Um, but now, now the switch is to opioids. And uh, more people have substance abuse disorders than people with cancer. One in five Americans binge drinks. And substance abuse disorders cost the U.S. more than $420 billion a year. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is, uh, these are all wake-up calls, actually. Um, 
Now, one of the ways that this report is trying to uh, get us to have less, feel less stigma towards people who abuse drugs is to talk about the uh, growing evidence that substance abuse has roots in neurobiology. So in other words, the, these uh, drugs that are addictive change the brain so that it demands more of the same drug to function. That's what I was talking about in, in terms of tolerance. Um, nearly 30,000 people die from heroin or prescription opioid misuse every year. So, so you see that, um, so you see that this really, we, we, you know, we, this problem has been grossly underestimated. And my call to action for you today is if you are suffering from drug or alcohol abuse yourself, or if you're afraid you're heading down that slippery slope, um, please get help today. And if you know someone who's struggling with drug or alcohol addiction, show them that you care by getting them help. You need to swallow your pride. You need to face your, your own stigma, your fear of what the doctor is going to say to you, the shame and so on, and get help. Um, now, some of these... Oh, some more, some more of these... I, can't help telling you about some of these statistics because I know, I know that they're going to be um, shocking. Um, in 2015, uh, 28 million people reported that they had driven under the influence of drugs and alcohol, and of course, this is going to increase um, as more states are making the the recreational use of marijuana legal. Now, marijuana. Um, certainly does have some medicinal uses, some good uses. It helps people with with seizures. It helps people with nausea, and that's how it was used a lot originally as far as uh, people on chemotherapy for cancer, that uh, if, they, if they used pot, it helped them with the nausea. And there are various, various medical problems that, that are... Um, bonafide good reasons for using marijuana. But of course, uh, even before states have been uh, increasing the ability for people to have access to recreational marijuana, certainly there have been people who have been getting litters from their doctors, again, or have been finding unscrupulous doctors who um, are willing to give them these um, permission slips to go, you know, I mean, by saying that they have headaches or various other kinds of problems, so it hasn't been um, it hasn't been a hundred percent foolproof that people haven't been using it for for recreational purposes already. But of course, when a state uh, law goes into effect that now it's perfectly legal to use it for recreational reasons, then of course there are going to be more people doing so. Now, before you, I know what you're thinking, I'm on my high horse, get it, high horse, um, thinking that, um, uh, you know, that everybody's bad, that it's bad if you, if you smoke a joint, or it's bad if you uh, use a pill for pain, or something like that, but, um, and, and so I, you know, I'm coming at this, my perspective is, is from two 
points of view. One, professionally, I have seen what this does to people. Um, I started out in my in my first year of psychiatric residency, actually, at NYU Bellevue. I saw what happened to people when um, and when they were smoking pot. Um, how this affected them. And I saw so many sad cases of, I mean, I'm not even talking about, of course, you know, it goes without saying pretty much that, you know, people who are abusing uh, hardcore drugs are, are going to be ruining their life unless they get help. But even pot, even then, um, I saw high school and college students who uh, started out, you know, peer pressure or having parties and so on, using pot, and then kind of getting in the habit of doing that. And then all of a sudden they wind up in, uh, in Bellevue, in the psychiatric ward. Now, how does that happen? That happens because these people didn't know, as many people don't know, that Uncle Charlie or Cousin Susie um, are... Uh, have schizophrenia, have had, have schizophrenia or manic depressive illness, which is also called bipolar. So in other words, psychosis runs in the family and they either didn't know about it or they didn't think it was going to affect them and it hadn't affected them up until that point. But one of the things that pot does is that it brings out in people who have a genetic predisposition to a psychosis, it makes the psychosis manifest. And I, I have seen countless, countless examples of this. So people who were looking towards um, a, a very promising career, you know, they were in college and they were heading towards a great career and they were really smart and all of that, or in high school, they were, you know, their chances of getting into a good college were great. People who were heading in really good directions were just, you know, even not just about their career, but just in terms of other aspects of their life. They were talented in various ways. And they started, you know, started as, as a lark, thinking it was not going to do anything bad. And it brought out their psychosis. And there they are on the, on the unit, on the ward. And that isn't to say that people who, that it's a death sentence if you have schizophrenia or manic depressive illness, but it certainly does make life a little tougher. You need to be in ongoing therapy pretty much for the rest of your life. You need to be taking medication for the rest of your life. And, um, and it just makes life harder to do the things that you were planning to accomplish. Now, um, getting back to my high horse, um, I have tried um, uh, various things like, you know, pot, for example. In, in college, I went to a school where um, I went to Stony Brook, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and um, there were a lot of irreverent, rebellious students <laughs> there, and pot was like a no-brainer, no you know, that would be something you would just do, and not to mention other things. And I would just kind of, you know, not... Not, I would look down on that and think, uh, oh, God, you know, how could you do that? Um, until I got to medical school in Belgium and my, you know, the Americans, there weren't many American students there. And so we kind of um, hung out together on the weekends. And um, some of the of these students um, started smoking pot. And um, I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll try it. 
And I did it for a while. And yes, it does make music sound better. <laughs> and lots of other things. It does also give you the munchies and make you put on weight. But in any case, it didn't take me long to realize that it also made it a lot harder to study for tests. So my days of pot smoking were limited um, because I found it was more important to pass tests, do well on tests, and uh, get through medical school. And in fact, at the end, um, at the time of graduation, those fellow students um, who continued using pot and um, other substances presumably as well, uh, didn't quite make it to graduation. They were never graduating. So, you know, um, they're really, it really does have an effect. I mean, mainly what the effect of uh, pot is, uh, is increasing apathy and decreasing ambition, um, not to mention lowering the sperm count in men. But, um, but you know, also, as I was saying, the, the, the biggest um the biggest problem, or even the most more dangerous problem, I mean, apathy and, and lowering your ambitions are certainly a day-to-day -day extremely, it, it changes the course of what you're dreaming for yourself. Um, but also, of course, psychosis is the most dangerous. So um, let me, uh, we've come to the, to the letter and email, uh, Ask the Terrorist Therapist um, portion of the show. And um, let me read a, an email from Cameron. Dear Terrorist Therapist, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm 28 years old, uh, and right now I have three months of sobriety. I feel good about the progress I've been making, but I feel sad and angry that it took me this long to get to this point. I waited far too long to get help because I didn't want to tell anyone, even my family doctor, how bad my drinking had gotten. I was too ashamed. There is still stigma about it. Like when I tell a woman I want to date that I'm a recovering alcoholic, it often makes her not want to date me. I wish people would realize it doesn't make me a bad person. Any ideas for what I could do? Well, yes, Cameron. My first idea is that you have to first confront your own feelings of being a bad person, your shame about what you've been doing with your addiction. And you can do this by being in or staying in therapy. And then you will project this feeling to other people, even women you want to date, um, that, you know, yes, that was something in your past and you have had the strength to overcome it. And so, of course, you're not a bad person. But, you know, it is, of course, a big problem, the stigma and shame that keep people from getting help, and you're to be admired for finally taking the plunge and getting the help. And you can do more. You can be uh, a success story, and you can model your behavior and your success for other people, um, that a past history of alcoholism isn't a death sentence. And you can... Uh, overcome this, you can, you can model for people how they can overcome this too to have a great life. And you seem to be on your way to making this come true for yourself. So, <laughs> um, getting back to terrorism and um, addiction, 
again, you need to sort of be alert to how various stressors in your life, including uh, the stress of terrorism and including wanting to hide from this stress and wanting to make it easier to hide from terrorism by escaping into alcohol and drugs, um, that is not a solution because um, it, it just crumbles your life and um, it makes you less resilient to, to, to doing anything in your life, including um, being able to be uh, successful and resilient to, to this threat and to terrorist attacks. And so um, I, I want to thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. And I want to remind you that if you're suffering, my, my take-home message is that if you are suffering from drug or alcohol abuse, or if you're afraid you're heading down that slippery slope, please swallow your pride just like Cameron did and get help. There is help available. It is a combination of um, therapy and it's mainly therapy, understanding and dealing with the stressors that you have in your life um, in a more constructive way, understanding what things from childhood are still affecting you today and so on. And if you know someone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol, show them uh, that you care by getting them help. So um, I hope that, uh, that these statistics have kind of shocked you into, into realizing the problem that this country has and into realizing that not only do you need to get help for yourself, but it really is a patriotic act and a loving act to get help for other people who you know and who you care about who need to get this help. 